It's the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. In this episode, we're focusing on fish. The UK and a Changing Europe has an excellent, clear, informative report out today, June the 12th, about fisheries, something that's become a touchstone issue all through this thing we call Brexit. I was joined again by Christopher Huggins, Senior Lecturer in Politics at the University of Suffolk and the UK in a Changing Europe's Fish Guy. He worked on one of their projects concerned with the fishing industry and he oversaw the latest report. And we were joined by Jill Rutter, Senior Research Fellow at UK Changing Europe. Now, stay to the end of this particular podcast for I have a big announcement at the end, along with all the usual messages. But uh, I started by asking Chris what's changed since he was last on the podcast last year. Here we go. Stay till the end. What's changed in the last uh, 12, 14 months on the fisheries issue? I guess I guess the big thing that's changed is Brexit has happened. So along with that, we've we now have a new deadline for getting deals and negotiations done by. Um, it, in terms of the wider picture about what fisheries is about, actually, actually not a lot has moved on. And I, I think this reflects why the negotiations are, you know, at the point we're speaking at a at a point of impasse almost, because the EU hasn't really shifted from its position that much. The UK hasn't really shifted from its position that much. And I guess even more fundamentally, that the UK is still in the same position it was last year. And I think one of the key points I made in the podcast last year was that the UK doesn't have its own fisheries policy yet. It's sort of still just trying to figure figure out how, how things will work. Um, and we still don't have that, I guess, overarching fisheries policy for the UK. So essentially all we're doing at the moment is mirroring or copying, if you like, um, or following what uh, the EU does. There's there's no sort of strategic policy, if you like, around, um, y- you know, the big issues around who's going to get what quota other than other than it's, it's just going to be looked into. So on the one hand, the Brexit debate has moved on. The UK has left the EU. But when it comes to fisheries, I guess many of the big questions remain unaddressed as they were a year ago. And the deadline is 1st of July, is that right? As I understand it, we have to have a fisheries arrangement by the 1st of July? Well, that's that's what they want. Um, as to whether they will get it, I think is a different matter. You know, the, the noise coming from both sides is, is negative at the moment in terms of, you know, so-and-so is being unflexible, the UK is being unflexible, the EU is being unflexible, we can't see a path through. That said, um, there are other things going on in the world right now. Uh, government effort is elsewhere. And, and if anything, the whole Brexit debate, including on fisheries, has taught us. It's that, you know, things can be kicked down the road if needs be at pretty short notice. Um, they can agree an extension if they want to. Um, it might not be liked in some quarters, but it's it's available. Technically speaking, they don't need to agree a new fisheries deal that 
you know, the UK will effectively just, we're, we're essentially back in the no deal territory we were before, if you like, in terms of the, the UK just stops this transition period at the end of December and just does its own thing. So yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty, I guess, around this. I, and again, this uncertainty, I think, is one of the main drivers we try to pick pick up in the in the report that we've just done as well. You know, there's there's, there's a lot of unanswered questions, if you like. Um, the UK doesn't necessarily need to do a deal, but it will probably want to do a deal um, for some of the reasons that we outline in the report, which is you can't really you can't do fisheries policy on your own. You can't work in isolation. You know, there is no there is no line in the sea that says British cod stop swimming here. Um, so, you know, the UK will still have will still be bound by international rules and obligations around what it needs to do. And that does require cooperation with neighbouring coastal states. And also, as you say in the report, there's this issue of fisheries I like the sort of term, I think I might have paraphrased it slightly, but economic insignificance and mutual dependence, um, yeah. which again rather points to the fact that we can't just do what we want on fisheries. I think 80% of our fish are exported and 80% comes in, so it's a sort of 80-80 swap. The sort of pithy response is, is uh, that the UK exports all it catches and imports all it eats. Um, which, which obviously isn't a hard and fast rule, but it, you know, it pretty much sums up the situation. Um, so, talk to me about this deadline, Jill. You, you were looking sceptical when I suggested that there's this this first of July deadline. So, where have so I got this not, idea it's, from? It's uh, not a deadline as we've talked about deadlines before. So, there's some real deadlines which are written down in the treaties. So, yeah, sure. there's a there's a deadline which is the deadline for asking for an extension. If you talk to, you know. Uh, Catherine Barnard, senior fellow at UK and Changing Europe, she'll tell you that you get into real trouble if you decide you want to extend once you let that uh, let that deadline go. There's a deadline at the end of the year, and with nothing happens at the end of the year, as Chris was saying, the UK just leaps with deal, no deal, or whatever. We just go. Mm. Uh, the deadline of 1st of July on fisheries was a bit different. In the political declaration, they said that both sides would use their best endeavours to reach an agreement on fish. So it's not a hard and fast legal deadline. The idea was that there are loads of things to be negotiated on fish, uh, less so if you obviously go for the, uh, for the EU approach of just let's preserve more or less the common fisheries policy as now, but there's loads of things to be negotiated. And the idea was if we give fishermen that sort of certainty by having some sort of deal in place by uh, 1st of July, then we can get on. The other thing is that the EU, because I think the EU recognises that fish is the probably the one area where the UK holds more cards than the mm. EU does, uh, because as Chris says, no deal, the UK becomes independent coastal state, takes back control, uh, to use a phrase of its waters, um, that the EU has always said a precondition of doing a bigger deal with the UK is a deal on fish. So you've got to put your fish up front and then we can do the other stuff. Um, and that's why they've been very keen to do, you know, remember when we started Article 50, there was that big row in the summer. Remember David Davis said the row of the summer was going to be about sequencing. Well, fish is part of the EU sequencing. Try and pick the UK off on fish, on fish access. And then we'll talk about the wider trade deals or whatever. That's not particularly in the UK's interest because this is one of our bigger cards. And fish, we've talked about, you know, it's economically insignificant in the UK. 
it's actually, unless you're probably Malta, pretty insignificant in the rest of the EU. Uh, it doesn't account for very much of GDP anywhere. There's a great chart in our new report about that. But it is politically quite important. Yeah. So basically, the battle over access to UK waters is the UK versus France, Denmark, I suppose to some extent Ireland. The Spanish are actually the really big fishermen in the EU, but they're not nearly as dependent. They don't come up and take so much out of uh, out of our waters. So it's really France and Denmark. And remember that you know we have politics here. Boris Johnson will have to you know be fighting. His Conservative Party will be fighting elections in Scotland next year. Uh, SNP will be playing nationalist cards right, left, and centre, trying to get some momentum behind the delayed Indy Ref two bid. But also President Macron faces. Uh, elections next year and selling out the French fishermen will not be a good look for him either. And that's one reason why this is sort of, you know, the economics of fish say, why on earth couldn't you do a deal tomorrow? This is the most trivial of sectors. The politics of fish is an absolute nightmare. And that's why we're in this impasse. I don't know whether Chris agrees with that, but it's a sort of really interesting thing. We talk about this thing called political economy. This is mm -hmm. minute economy massive politics and that's why fish is such a problem area in the eu negotiations i'd really i'd really agree with that it's we're not dealing in purely economics here we're driven by a political imperative as much as an economic one and and you know for for people in many of the in many of the coastal communities who are affected by this um actually it's not a trivial economic pursuit it is actually core to the survival of many coastal communities um, whether that's your big port, say, like Peterhead in Scotland, or whether you're talking about, you, you know, one of the smaller fishing communities, say, you know, in, off the west coast of Scotland, for example, in, in those areas, fishing is, fishing is, is, is big. It, it matters for their local economy. Um, it matters as part of the local cultural identity and so on. So it, it's, it, it's always easy to look at the national picture and go, such a minuscule proportion of the UK economy, why are we getting so hung up about it? Um, but but really, actually, it matters to people. And, you know, if it matters to people, it matters for the politics that's underlying all of this. But why does it matter to people? Because as you say, I mean, you're saying, uh, you know, there's a political as much as an economic imperative here. It's clearly not. Clearly, the political imperative vastly outweighs the economic one on this one, on, on fish at least. Um, why fish? I mean, there's lots of small sectors of the economy that you know are going to be impacted by brexit obviously you know i don't know uh i, I don't know i think what else there might be there pick anything at random you know um well i mean i suppose there's care homes that are obviously going to need staff that's quite a significant chunk of the economy uh i don't know me and my brothers were bizarrely talking about how Bob Carroll's 1970s ventriloquist now runs a candle shop in Chester. Candles. Why doesn't the candle sector? Why is that? Not? Yeah, I don't know. Just pick anything think, at random. But what, uh, I why? mean, yeah, with, all due, with all due respect to your mate's candle shop, it's not got quite the same sort of cultural resonance. <laughs> so I think one of the problems why? with fishing is, uh, is it sort of tied up. We just touched on this in the report. It's got this sort of, it's bound up a bit uh, with this sort of idea of Britain as a nation, a sort of seafaring nation. <clears throat> There's sort of, you know, most emblematic piece, the piece you can see of taking back control is that we control the waters around, the fish stocks that are our natural resources, and combine that with a very long-standing sense of grievance. It's not clear that it's entirely due to the common fisheries policy, 
but for 40, 50 years, fishing communities have felt hard done by. 35% of the EU catch, is a figure that I didn't know before I read our excellent report, 35% of the EU catch comes from UK waters. We only get 13% of our catch from their waters. So there's this sense that this is a very unfair trade. And you've got people who've seen their communities decline. We talk a lot about levelling up and the red wall and sort of, you know, manufacturing deprivation, you know, deprivation places of lost old industries. Some of the poorest communities in the country are some of these fishing communities They're where you get very low education achievement, people trapped. Things. So I think there's this sort of sense of a great injustice done to them a couple of generations ago now. And this is the chance to rectify it. And one of the first sort of symbols that the UK is different and now regained our sovereignty. We can talk about you know, whether sovereignty is, uh, is a real or important notion. But if you're a Brexiteer, yeah, you think that this matters enormously. So I think there's a sort of this odd symbolism that at the very least we get back control of our waters. Fishing is the litmus test for Brexit in, in some ways. Um, so and and that's because it took on this prevalence in the campaign and it took on a prevalence in the campaign for all the reasons Jill outlined. It's it's culturally significant to this country, um, whether whether you agree with that notion or not. It, the fact is, it is um, so, you know, not only not only does it matter to fishing communities, but it is tied in with this idea of Britain, Britain as a sort of seafaring uh, naval nation. You know, it's um, it is. And, and, you know, the, the idea of sort of protecting fisheries isn't new either. It's, uh, it's, it's long standing. You know, Admiral Nelson started out in protecting fisheries in his Royal Navy career. So this idea that, you know, fish is an important resource tied to Britain's seafaring identity is, is important. And economically, it might not be important, but the cultural significance of it is. And given all that. How big a role does it play then in the negotiations, the, the wider negotiations about getting a uh, a free trade trade agreement? If you look at the uh, negotiating round last week, you know you'll have trading goods. Uh, I think they had two or three sessions that trading services, and then you have you know four sessions devoted to fish. So you know, and that's of eleven topics that they were discussing. Uh, in the Brexit negotiations. So I think you could say it's looming pretty large. The interesting thing at the moment is that this is an area where I think Michel Barnier knows that he's got to move. Uh, he said at the end of the third negotiating round a few weeks back, he described both positions as maximalist. And then before the fourth negotiating round last week, he had a meeting with eight of the fisheries ministers. Yeah, this doesn't matter. If you're Croatia or you're Austria, access to UK waters is not top of your political agenda. Uh, so, you know, there are eight nations with a sort of big stake in this. Uh, he had a meeting with those fishing ministers, you know, and there was sort of suggestions he was going there saying, look, I need a bit more flexibility. You know, they were getting stuck on this. And they told him, you know, stick to your mandate, mate, go back and tell the Brits where it's at and we're not giving you any flexibility. But there are some suggestions. I mean, the EU negotiators said there has been, what I think Stefan de Rink, uh, Michel Barnier's uh, special advisor said, was uh, was timid progress. There are some suggestions that, you know, there's a bit of flexibility. Reports that the UK negotiators have been sort of asking for data about, uh, you know, which communities 
northern France, Denmark may be particularly affected if they're abruptly cut off from access to UK waters. So you can see that there's sort of, you know, dancing around, you know, what might be some of the elements in a deal. Uh, Michel Barnier said, you know, you you want a Norway style agreement, but you that's just like infeasible uh, because there are far fewer shared fish stocks between the EU and Norway. You know, he's, his figure is there are 12 fish stocks we have to negotiate annually with the Norwegians. There are 100 fish stocks we have to negotiate annually between the UK and the EU. You know, do we want to really negotiate 100 fish stocks from first principles year after year after year? So I think there's, you know, a bit of yeah. dancing around about where they might come down to. But at the moment, both sides are locked in. The UK fisheries agreement uh, that they've put their draft forward basically just says in four pages of text, yay, we're an independent coastal state, come talk to us every year. And that's sort of more or less it. Would either side ultimately sacrifice a larger deal over the issue of fish? If you look at the pure economics of it, no. No, no side realistically is going to scupper a whole deal over the issue of fish. But, you know, it is, as, as both Jill and I have pointed out, it's is politically important in not only the UK, but also um, many key EU member states as well. So that and and, you know, that Michel Barnier, you know, he's, he he likes to get a lot of the, I guess, the uh, the attention from the UK press is holding things up. But really, his instructions are coming from the member states. And it's it's the member states who, you know, re remember, these are not just Brussels bureaucrats or something. These are politicians in their own countries who are trying to satisfy their own domestic political demand. So, you know, we have to, we have to be aware of the, the politics behind this. This isn't a sort of, at, at some point we need to sort of focus on the fact that this isn't, this isn't the Brussels machine we're necessarily mm -hmm. going up against. These are politicians engaging in hard-nosed international politics. Mm -hmm. And this is a case of international diplomacy. Um, you know, the UK is no longer an EU member state. It's no longer working within a sort of institutional framework of governance. It is now on its own operating in an international arena. And this is a matter of international diplomacy. And in international diplomacy, um, you, if, if you want to get something done, normally you have to make some sort of, you have to negotiate some sort of trade-off. I think on your question, James, will we sacrifice a deal on that? Logically, neither side should. Absolutely neither side should. You know, the EU has to confront the fact that with no deal, the UK will be an independent coastal state under international law. They will have to, you know, there will have to be annual negotiations over access. I mean, that's a sort of bottom line default. Uh, so anything they can get over that's a win, if you like. Um, it's definitely not worth it for the UK economy to sacrifice, you know, the sort of amounts of GDP that some of our analysis suggests is at stake if you... Uh, if you go for, uh, you know, big non-tariff barriers and potentially tariff barriers, which you get without a trade deal. So that's not worth it. Uh, so rationally, of course, it shouldn't scupper a deal, but it might. And, and I think another important point here, we're talking about the fishing industry as a sort of unitary whole. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to say Britain's standing up for the fishing mm. industry and, you know, they'll be able to catch more fish. Well, that's that's great if you're a, you know, if you're a, a large vessel that goes out on the high seas and, you know, catches, say, you know, cod, you know, species that are subject to EU quota, you start mm. to benefit from that position. 
Um, but if if your sort of sacrificial lamb in all of this is a trade deal with easy access to EU markets, mm. and you know you're sh you're fishing for shellfish, which you know is, is the biggest part of the UK's fishing sector, then actually they're your sacrificial lamb in all of this. So so if if you pursue that line of wanting to to sort of put fisheries above everything else you're still going to cause a lot of damage to the fisheries industry. Mm. I mean, those sectors are already suffering quite badly from yeah. COVID because one of the things about, you know, the shellfish industries, particularly if you're sort of exporting things like live crab, I mean, they, they export a lot to the EU because they really like our shellfish. They have to, it's very perishable, so delays are really difficult. You know, some of the exports are live crabs, live crabs sort of having to wait for ages to get cleared through a border inspection post. It's not good news if you're a live crab because then you're a dead crab and that's not the same export. So that's uh, that's not great news there. Basically, they've got big markets in restaurants that's obviously closed down because of COVID and the EU uh, and restaurants in the EU. That becomes really difficult. And when uh, I was watching sort of representative the fishing industries giving evidence to the Efra Select Committee earlier in the week, the big alternative market is China. Uh, that's uh. a very problematic market at the moment. So uh, that's an industry that's already been very badly hit. There have been lots of special schemes to try and uh, bail out bits of the fishing industry and keep it intact. So, but it's really interesting. But the one thing that was quite interesting that all the representatives of the fishing industries agreed was that they you know they attach so much importance to this issue of access to the waters uh that actually they wouldn't trade access for a trade deal for fish because you could say well isn't that a logical trade you know particularly when you look at the figures in our report there's sort of you know as we were talking about the fact that you know what we catch we don't particularly like eating etc etc you'd have thought that that's a very logical trade to make but that's one that all those fishing associations they really in their mind have separated off access to fish from access to markets for fish, which I thought was quite interesting. Right, there's a, a couple of things there. You both mentioned one element in particular I want to come back to, but I'll, I'll come back to Jill first on coronavirus. Um, clearly, coronavirus is a bad thing for everyone because tens of thousands of people have died. However, uh, how does it feed into the the negotiations then? Does it, you know, has, has fisheries sort of lost some of its pertinence because there's this other huge issue going on and does that perhaps present an opportunity to 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 come to an agreement on fisheries because everybody goes we're a bit busy with everything else let's just do a deal on fisheries you know tinker around the edges and move on uh you might have uh, you might have thought that james but i don't think so uh, i think you know it's probably given more prominence to fisheries because difficult more difficult things probably go down and as i said this had this sort of separate earlier deadline so you can ask say if there's less bandwidth for negotiations the thing that had attached to it a target date of the first of july looms rather larger than other things that were always going to come a bit later uh you could say, has it changed the minds in the fishing industry? Because they've seen what happens when they have reduced access to markets and things like that. But it doesn't seem doesn't seem particularly to have done that. But I mean, the fishing industry is now, if you like, more fragile because it's been hit by two things. One of which is the loss of access to the sort of restaurants, EU markets and that sort of bit of trade. The other thing, and this was really interesting, and because where I live, uh, my supermarkets don't have fresh fish counters, but one of the big COVID beefs of the industry and which has led to oversupply, which they've had to manage by reining back catches, 
is that a lot of the supermarkets' reactions to the sort of you know change they had to put in place to manage coronavirus was to shut their fresh fish counters, and that's obviously reduced the scope for them to sort of market in that form. So it's a sort of really is you know so you've got a fragile an industry that's been sort of if you like, sort of suffering because of the impacts of the common fisheries policy, though, I mean, as the report shows, it's been becoming more productive, it's consolidated a bit, it's become more productive, um, but then being hit, you know, quite disproportionately by some of the implications of, you know, the closure of their normal outlets, you know, this year. So I think that probably just raises the sensitivity. So fish is, if anything, perhaps more important. Now, Chris, you mentioned diplomacy now of course when diplomacy fails that's when we have wars now i saw and i think it was patrick o'flynn wrote last week saying why doesn't the government put out a tender for a load of warships i'll tell that would tell the eu that we're serious about fishing get some fishing protection vessels going on um well we have <laughs> well all right i mean that struck me as mildly ridiculous but is it that far-fetched? Are we are we looking at the old... You mentioned Iceland as well. Have we got the old Cod War on the horizon here? I, I don't think a la Iceland Cod War we're going to start going into ramming vessels with Royal Navy boats and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, one, there are a number of risks associated with not... with, with the diplomacy and, and the negotiations not succeeding. So one of these is you do create heightened tensions among different fishing fleets, that leads to actions in a dangerous environment. And you will remember perhaps the Scallop Wars incidents off, you know, off the coast of Normandy. Mm. And that's, you know, that doesn't particularly shed any fine light on anyone involved because, you, you know, working at sea is a pretty dangerous job, frankly. Um, mm. And you don't want to end up in situations where you're adding more danger to the equation. So if you end up in a situation where tempers are frayed, that sort of thing can happen. That's, I think, the more extreme end. Other things that can happen if you don't secure a deal is, you know, you can look at what's happened between the EU and other countries before. So, you know, there have in the past been sanctions placed on the EU against other countries for not, you know, for taking unilateral decisions. And that and these sanctions sometimes include the closure of EU ports to landing vessels, um, stopping exports of fresh fish into markets. So, it's very easy to sort of talk in a jovial way about, you know, oh, well, if nothing else happens, we'll send in the gunboats and we'll push them all aside. Um, but actually, there are some quite significant economic consequences for, for not agreeing something. And and if if not agreeing a deal turns into a more acrimonious relationship, you end up with some of these more um, significant issues. Hi, Arnon here. Sorry to butt in, but I just wanted to say, if you like this podcast, which I'm sure you do, then please rate it wherever you get your podcasts from. You'll be doing a public service because it makes it easier for others to find us. While you're at it, go to our website, www.ukandeu.ac.uk and sign up for our fantastic newsletter every two weeks, free in your inbox. Do it now. The constitution in all this. I mean, we've mentioned, uh, you know, Scottish fishermen. <laughs> We're talking about negotiating, but of course, fisheries is devolved to Edinburgh. Um, it's possibly a rather big question to answer in a limited amount of time, but <laughs> uh, I'll do it anyway. How does this all impact on the, the question of the constitution? Um, does it make Scottish independence more uh, attractive or not, given, I suppose, what's gone on so far? 
possibly reeling forward into what might happen in the next six months. I, I, I don't necessarily know about the question of independence, but I, 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 fisheries, fisheries is a good example of the issues around devolution to do with Brexit in general. So fisheries is devolved, as you say. That means in terms of how it's administered, in terms of putting the policy together and how it's run, that is that is up to the Scottish government, the Welsh government, the Northern Irish executive, um, and in the, in the case of England, um, the UK government. But as we've as has been quite clear throughout all of our conversation, you can't do fisheries policy unless you talk to other countries. You can't do fisheries policy unless you engage in international trade. And these things are not devolved competencies. These are these are UK reserved powers. So fisheries highlights, I guess, a tension in the devolution agreement where, you know, it, it's going to have it's going to force the devolved administrations and the UK government to work with each other. But something else we highlight in the report is the fact that different parts of the UK have different interests in all of this. So, you know, what matters for Scotland in terms of a fisheries negotiation is very different to what matters for Wales. Mm-hmm. Scotland, I would say, especially if you, and, and, you know, also within these countries. So the northeast of Scotland, what they really want is to get as much control over things as they can, get all the quota back they can so their industry can go out and ca- on in their big boats and catch all the fish in the sea. That's that's not very useful if you're a Welsh fisherman where the predominancy is around shellfish, being able to export easily, you know, small scale fishing mostly. Mm. So this is and and not only do you then potentially see an issue in negotiating with the UK government, which is trying to, I guess, win the political appeal in this, but actually each devolved nation has its own set of interests that it would like to see in any future development of fisheries policy. Mm. But it, it, at the same time, they can't all go it alone either. We, it, it would be, it wouldn't make sense to have four independent fisheries policies across the UK. But at the same time, they still need to account for the fact we've often got competing demands from different parts of the UK and and indeed from different parts of the UK fleet. I mean, fisheries has always been quite a tense issue, even while we're in the CFP. Uh, I used to be at DEFRA and one of the uh, regular arguments was the Scots would say we ought to lead in the fisheries negotiations. We have a much bigger interest than England, certainly relative to the economy. And, you know, for these purposes, you're the English minister and the DEFRA minister would say, no, we're the UK minister. And there used to be these arrangements during these never ending fisheries councils at the end of the year where they did the sort of carve up to make sure that if the UK fisheries minister left, there was an official from UCREP who could take the seat to make sure that the Scottish fisheries minister didn't sort of, you know, as you might say, take control and sit in that seat. So there was always a sort of bit of a tension there between the different interests and the relative insignificance for England in many ways of this compared compared to Scotland. So I think one of the difficulties with all of this is that I know uh, Nicola Sturgeon would say this is very unfair, but, you know, the Scottish government relations aren't necessarily desperately good uh, on a lot of the Brexit issues. I think they've actually worked relatively well on coronavirus, but desperately good on uh, on Brexit issues between the UK and the other nations. The UK, you know, we mentioned earlier asking for an extension. The Scottish government's asked the British government to ask for an extension. The Welsh government's asked the British government to ask for an extension. The Northern Ireland Assembly's asked the British government to ask for an extension. The UK government's saying, no way we're asking for an extension. So, you know, relations aren't that great. And as you 
move towards the Holyrood elections and a possible move towards IndyRef2, the more examples that the Scottish government can show that Scotland's interests are not well served by being part of the UK, the stronger the case becomes for that political case for uh, for independence. So uh, I think it's another area of potential tension. And the UK government's track record on consulting that devolves on future trade agreements, you know, based on the example of the US, is looking pretty awful. I mean, it's not a naturally consultative sharing no. sort of government on that. So uh, it hasn't set up great mechanisms for uh, involving the devolves there. Intergovernmental relations is another one to go in the big box of things that could it's, have been improved if when devo devolution was set up in the late 90s, they'd actually thought about intergovernmental relations. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. Okay, listen, let's let's finish up with, uh, for the final time, the feature, the feature of what you'd recommend to understand Brexit. Have you got recommendations for understanding Brexit. Uh, Jill, do you want to go first? Okay, okay, give Chris the last word. So I'm not going to do Brexit generally, but um, but I thought I might do fishing, actually. Yeah. Uh, so uh, before lockdown, she hastens to add, I was uh, up staying with some friends near the Scottish borders and we went to a place called Eyemouth. And at Eyemouth, there's a big uh, sculpture which is a monument to the Eyemouth fishing disaster of 1881, in which 189 fishermen from uh, that port and ports around were killed. And it's got this huge big thing about how the women stayed, they wouldn't let their children go into orphanages, and they rebuilt the fishing community. And I thought actually that monument was quite a good example of this thing we talked about earlier, of this sort of you know, partly sort of vision of some of these communities as hardy communities battling against the odds. They're battling against the hostile sea. As Chris said, it's a very dangerous business. We haven't had sort of big trawler sinkings recently, but, you know, that's lodged in the folk memory. And I think that sort of shows one reason why actually this is not just candles. Statues as well. Statues are very, very topical at the moment, but let's not go there. Uh, Chris, have you got something to add to the list? So if I recall correctly, I, I recommended a programme called yes. Fish Tale, and, that's what and called, Last yeah. One, which was based in Peterhead yeah. in Scotland. And they've since done a sort of a, a, a similar thing, but based around the Cornish fishing industry. So it's called Cornwall This Fishing Life. Um, and, and again, it will be available on iPlayer and stuff. And, and, and again, I think it really it will really highlight, if you watch it, it will really highlight to people how... This, this goes beyond the simple economics of it. You know, this is this does matter to people. This is a part of people's livelihoods. This does have some sort of cultural significance um, to people. I mean, the fact the fact they dedicated a, a, a what a six episode series to it would probably be evidence enough of that. Um, but but you know, these I, I I like these programs because you know we can sit here and talk about. The mechanics of how to do a deal with the EU, but at the, at the end of the day, we're also talking about people's livelihoods here, um, and it's important, I think, to have some reflection on that. So that's my recommendation. Excellent. Yes, as hinted at there, the list of recommendations is complete. 
my work here is done. This is, that was, my final Brexit Breakdown podcast. And I think that final recommendation from Chris does speak to a theme of these podcasts. The first recommendation from Matt Chorley was Hillbilly Elegy, a book. And the last is about fishing communities in Cornwall, a TV series. If I've come close to achieving my mission to find out more about Brexit, it's that, rightly or wrongly, left behind communities of one sort or another are at the heart of it. Perhaps I'll work that thought into something more substantial. I'm sure I will in the days to come. But if you want to keep up with my work to find out if I do, visit my website, james-miller.com. The Facebook page for my podcasts, which is uh, Political Yeti's Politics Podcast. And my Twitter feed, which is at Political Yeti. If you want to bombard the UK and Changing Europe with messages urging them to keep me on and the Brexit breakdown as it is, they are at UK and EU on Twitter or their website is ukandeu.ac.uk. I believe the Brexit breakdown will continue in some form, so do keep up your subscription. You keep following, liking, rating, reviewing, etc. I can't go without thanking all the team at UK and Changing Europe, particularly, of course, Anna Menon for acting on my urging to start a podcast about three years ago and uh, particularly Phoebe who makes sure I get paid but I uh, thank and pay tribute to all the staff and the academics at UK and Changing Europe I've worked with over the last three years it's been uh, a lot of fun and uh, a kind of privilege to hang around with them at this strange and interesting and historic time so for the last time the music has been Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra and this has been the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a changing Europe, supported by King's College London, funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. I've been James Miller. Thank you and goodbye.